Hey, this is Carl Monder with Gallant Few and the New American Veteran. Because the audio was so terrible on the last interview that I did with Stephen Trujillo, we decided to redo the interview. I've kept it all in the one-hour original interview, and the audio is much better. So enjoy, listen to Stephen Trujillo's story, and go buy his book. And while you're at it, if you have not participated, signed up, or donated to Run Ranger Run yet, please uh, check it out, runrangerrun.com. If you'd like to support my team, if you hit bit.ly slash gallant6, the number six, you can make a donation and support my team. Appreciate your support. Now here is Stephen Trujillo. Oh, man, we finally got this figured out. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to put all the blame on you. Because uh, because I tried a different way of capturing the audio last time. I tried using the soundboard, which I probably just screwed up the settings on. This time I'm recording it straight through the conference call service. So then afterwards I'll go download it from them, and and uh, it should be very clean. It should be exactly what we're hearing right now. Well, I'm not that smart, Carl. You know, I could stumble through uh, apps and links and, you know, but it's all... Just miraculous technology to me. <laughs> yeah, did you ever stop and think, <clears throat> if Armageddon happens and and uh, me and a handful of people are left and I'm expected to recreate a telephone or a computer, it oh, ain't happening. It can't. ain't happening. No, we can't. You know, <laughs> all, all it takes is one solar flare to, to knock us back into the Stone Ages, man. Well, so on that positive note, how are you? Welcome back to the New American Veteran. I'm just, I'm, I'm recording. I'm just going to let it roll here. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I'm good. I'm just, uh, I turned off all the fans in my office, so I'm sweating here, but uh, <laughs> it's all right, you know. You try and experiment, turn what I'm on, and I'll see if we get any feedback. Nah, it's not even a waste of time with it. I, I'm pretty sure that was one of the problems that we had. And I also think that uh, we were recording using the mic on my MacBook Air. Now I'm looking right at my iPad Pro, and it's just a few inches away from my mouth. So I think gotcha. we're getting much clearer. Well, you are loud and clear. So so last time we hit, there were kind of like three major themes that we talked about. We talked about the VA. Uh, we talked a little bit about being an expat. We talked a little bit of politics stuff, and then we talked about your book. But I would like to reverse all that because we didn't spend enough time on, on your the books that you're publishing. Let's start there. Is that fair? Okay. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I began uh, in 2017 publishing um, A Tale of the Grenada Raiders, and that was my uh, memoir of uh, uh, the first time I went to combat in uh, Grenada in 1983. And um, it took me 26 years to write that book. But I finally got it done, and I finally published it. I tried to publish it through, you know, traditional publishing houses, tried to get an agent, that sort of thing. It just didn't work out. So I just did hell with it, and I published it on Amazon myself. And it came out really well. I'm um, really delighted by the way it, it came out. It was very well received. I sold quite a few copies. Um, you know, and when I talk to people about this, who know about these things, I tell them how many copies I've sold there. They're staggered, you know, because for a self-published work on Amazon, I've sold a lot. Um, you don't get rich doing that. 
Amazon gets rich, you know, because uh, you know the the paperback edition, full color, eight and a half by eleven inches, several hundred hundred pages. I think three hundred seventy-seven pages uh, of that book. They retail it for sixty-four dollars and ninety-nine cents, and I really regret that, but that's what it costs, mm-hmm. you know, to uh, to publish that book in, in paperback. And a lot of people want, you know, the the tactile sensation of holding the book and, and 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 you know reading it that way. So you know there's some things I'm gonna do about that. Um, I'm gonna do a corrected edition because Jerry Sherman, who was an airborne ranger that dropped out of the network for many years, for decades in fact, he came back up, I re- and I interviewed him and he pointed out a couple of uh, errors, not whoppers, but errors. And since it is a work of history, you know, I feel compelled to uh, correct those errors and issue a corrected edition. And everybody that already purchased it, you know, uh, in electronic formats, will be able to download the corrected edition at no cost. Uh, but the uh, the paperback will be. You know, revised. It'll be a new edition. But I'm going to do some things with that. One thing I'm going to do is I'm going to publish it on Barnes and Noble. Uh, I have a suspicion that I'll be able to bring it in at thirty-four dollars and ninety-nine cents, which is nice. Right? Yeah, half the price. Uh, I'll also do it through Amazon, and they'll charge whatever they charge. But uh, you know, because part of the problem we we encounter here, Carl, is that a lot of people just by default buy books from Amazon. Um, my sales are primarily through Amazon, you know, and uh, I do publish other books through Barnes and Noble, but uh, the sales numbers just aren't there. Everybody's buying on on Amazon. It's just our default reflex when we buy books, we buy through Amazon. So, but you know, so I I'm, I am going to work around that. I'm going to I'm going to work around the pricing um, and bring bring an addition out to Barnes and Noble. And uh, of course, the electronic formats, the uh, the Kindle and the Nook and uh, uh, the Google Play and Google Books editions, they're all going to be significantly cheaper by several orders of magnitude. So that was my first book, right? 2017, The Tale of the Brigade of Raiders. It was very well well received. It's got like 56 five-star reviews on Amazon. And, uh, you know, I'm still in shock at that. You know, I keep oh, it's well written. Well, look, you know, whenever you put yourself out there like that, you write a book like that, and it's very personal. Uh, you know, you just you were you put this sign on that says "kick me," and you're just inviting people, right? Any critics, you know, to pile on, and I keep waiting for them to come, and they they really haven't, you know. And so, you know, I'm knocking on wood here because now that I'm saying this, now. You know, the critics will probably come out of the woodwork. <laughs> you know, it was well, I think great. we talked about the on the last interview where uh, we had uh, we had done a, a real nice event for a veteran, and then on social media, you know, the veteran posted the news article about him, and all these people are posting things like, "Well, my husband was in the military. Why didn't he get you know freebie stuff?" And <laughs> it's uh, it's like, uh, what did this guy do to deserve special treatment? And it's like, never oh, read the comment. If you have an article published about yourself, just never yeah. read the comments. Just don't. Do well, it. you know, and it's my bad <laughs> habit that I do read the comments. I I do read my reviews. You know, and in fact, many of the reviews that are really good, I I cite them and quote them 
in later books. I did that with uh, my uh, third book. Well, actually, it's my second book, Revelation, uh, that came after A Tale of the Grenada Raider. So my, my second and third books came out just this year, just a few weeks ago, in fact. Um, the sequel to A Tale of the Grenada Raiders is called Metamorphosis, Forging an Airborne Ranger. And it continues the narrative uh, that ended in a safe house in Lima in 1990 when I woke up from a nightmare, okay? So that was how I told, that was the, the metaphor that I used to tell a tale of the Grenada Raiders. It was all a dream, but it was a factual dream, you know, and it is a work of history. I synthesized, pardon me, I synthesized innumerable interviews, and I integrated historical photographs, period photographs. Um, so everything that's recounted in that book is in fact as factual as any history recounted by humans can be. But nonetheless, I make the point, I told the story as a dream. It was a nightmare, right? And I woke up and I realized it was a flashback. In fact, after I wrote that book, I didn't realize it was a flashback for maybe about a year. And then it dawned on me, I'm like, dumbass, that's, it was a flashback. The whole thing was a flashback. So the next book I was writing was Metamorphosis. And I decided to write a preface for that book. And I started writing it. And it started growing and growing and growing. And basically what I was doing is I was explaining why I wrote A Tale of the Grenada Raiders the way I did it. Right, the metaphysics behind it, the views that uh, infuse the book, and that turned into a work of metaphysics and philosophy and uh, comparative religion, and it incorporates Hinduism, Buddhism, the Apocrypha, Kabbalah in the Western mystery tradition. You can just go on and on and on. So it's a very different book, but it was originally the preface to Metamorphosis. So, you know, I'm pretty stupid. I, I actually tried to publish that book as the Rosetta Stone of Memories. And uh, when Amazon priced 490 pages of it at $88, I just went, man, I can't do that. And 15 people actually bought it in a paperback at $88, and I feel so guilty about that. So I pulled the book, and I split it into two books. I made the preface into Revelation, and I made the narrative into Metamorphosis, so it works much better. You know, in paperback, Revelation is $14.99. Uh, in paperback, Metamorphosis, I think, is $24.99, because it's just really rich in photographs. It's got a lot of photos. Um, on Amazon, that, that edition is all black and white, which I regret, but a full-color edition would have been just ridiculously, absurdly expensive. But I did publish the full-color edition on Barnes & Noble, and that comes in at $34.99. Now, all this just matters to people who insist on purchasing a physical book that they can hold in their hands. I vastly prefer that people purchase one of the innumerable uh, electronic editions, an e-book, you know, a Kindle version, uh, a Nook, uh, you know, you can get it from Google Play or from Apple iBooks, and they're much more affordable, and the photographs, you know, come out great. 
So, and they're easier to navigate. You can search across them using e-books. All those things you can't do when you're holding a tactile physical book in your hand. Right. You know? So, but a lot of people just insist on owning a physical book. So, you know, my, my sales are about 50-50, half and half, you know. So anyway, I like you know, uh, I like both of them because if you buy the physical book, then usually the digital book is is really cheap. Like you can get it well, for two bucks or something. Yeah, actually they they do offer that when you're doing your setup, when you're doing your publishing, mm -hmm. and I do I do take advantage of that. If you purchase a physical book, you can go into Amazon and you can purchase the ebook at you know basically a throwaway price. Because um, I figure, you know, I make ten bucks in royalties on a physical book. And I figure if I make ten bucks, I'm going to give you the ebook for free. I don't, you know, I'm not greedy. So yeah, but people like to buy the physical book, you know. And part of, one of the big problems I encounter as an expat living in Bangkok is, you know, people are always asking me, "How do I get you to sign it?" And the problem with that is that there's no logistics to support that. Is to ship a book from America to Bangkok costs three dollars, and uh, you know it's just too expensive. And then for me to ship it back, returns another thirty dollars. So you're talking sixty bucks on top of the price of the book. You're talking about a one hundred dollar exercise for an inscription by the author. So it just it doesn't make sense. So you know I'm going to be back in America. Um, well, I guess at the end of this week, I'm going to fly out at the end of this week to go back to Orlando for some treatment at the VA in uh, Lake Nona. So I will be in America, and I'll you know put that up on my Facebook. If folks want to make a trip or met, or, or send me a book while I'm in uh, in Orlando, you know I'd be ha I'd be happy to uh, to inscribe books. Do you have uh, <clears throat> Do you have an address or something? But you don't need to publish it here. But if you have a mailing address, if you want some people, like I could be one of them, that has that address, people could send me a private message and I could send them the address. Um, um, whatever we can do to help, let me know. I'm actually, I'm just going to, I'm going to stay in a hotel. I'm going to be there for a week, you know, and um, I do have friends in the area, but, you know, I don't, I don't like to just check in for a week on somebody, man. You know, so I, I booked a hotel. Uh, to stay, you know, in Orlando. So I'll be at a hotel for that week, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll certainly give you the address, and uh, you know, we can we can work that out. I don't, yeah. So I mean, yeah, if if that if that's a way to do that, I I would absolutely support that. I mean, that way, you don't have to publish your address, you know, social media or something. I'm just, you know, I'm just humbled that anybody would want, you know, a signature. From me on a book that I published. It's just well, well, you write about history. You're part of history. Well, you know, and that was one of the reasons why I wrote the books. Because uh, if we don't write that history, Carl, guess what? It dies when we die. Yeah. Right. And uh, well, the, the, what what is what is special though about somebody coming and seeking your autograph? I mean, sure, it's it's a personal link from you to them that they can take with them. But then what I would hope is in the future they would hand that book down and they would tell the story. And well, so generations in the future can say, you know, when you're no longer here, they can say, look, I've got the, the book signed by the author, this historical work. That's that's a cool thing. You know, um, that, I don't think anybody can argue that most writers get famous after they're dead. 
there's a number of reasons for that, you know, and it's not like I'm seeking fame. I've been famous, you know, a couple of times in the past, and it wasn't my cup of tea. I really didn't like being famous. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it's a historical truth that most writers don't get famous until after they're dead. So those people who do get inscribed copies for me, you know, they'll become collector's editions, you know, and people will sell them and... I don't know, museums will keep them and whatever, you know, assuming that, you know, I don't just fade into oblivion, which is quite possible, you know. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a weird thing for me. You know, it's perplexing, you know, when, when people say, well, hey, I really want to get this inscribed, and I'm just I'm so humbled by the, the whole idea of it, you know. It just, yeah, it freaks me out. But so, yeah, anyway, I've got three books now. Um, the Rosetta Stone of Memories turned into two books. Uh, the preface turned into the book Revelation, and the narrative turned into the book Metamorphosis, uh, for Junior and Airborne Ranger. So I think that most people listening to this uh, who liked the uh, narrative style of A Tale of the Grenada Raiders, they're going to naturally migrate to Metamorphosis. That's the, their book. It's a continuation. It's a sequel. Uh, Revelation is very much a different book, and I've made that book available free in its entirety on Google Books and on academia.edu and on ResearchGate, and I did it deliberately, number one, because it was a revelation. Uh, and I can't, pro I can't in good conscience, conscience profit from a book that was dictated to me by God. Okay, I can't. That's, that's just online, you know. So I made it available free. You don't, nobody has to buy that book. You can access that book through a number of modalities, right? Absolutely free. If you want to buy it, I'm grateful, you know, throw me a few ducats. Maybe I could buy, a, you know, a new Mac one of these days. I need one if I want to do, uh, you know, audio books, which I'd really like to do. I'd like to do, you know, YouTube clips of me reading the chapters, but and I need new hardware to do that. My little MacBook Air, it just doesn't have it in it to do that kind of thing. But uh, so anyway, yeah, there's there's three books. And Revelation is the second book, and the third book is Metamorphosis. And basically what Metamorphosis does is, you know, people said, well, where did Doc T come from? How did that happen? How did this guy end up in a safe house in Lima in 1990? And that's that story, you know. Uh, I had... Editors tell me I needed to fold those chapters into a tale of the Grenada Raiders. It was already big, man. At 377 pages, it was big enough. And a lot of them were photographs, I agree, but it was big. And I also really cut that manuscript down to make it lean and mean, to make it move, to make it read fast, you know, to keep you in the flow. I didn't want to interrupt you, right? So I pulled all that stuff out, and I put it into a separate book, and that book became Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis stands on its own as a separate book. Um, you know, it's pretty much a mem. you know, a, 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 I guess an autobiography. Um, it explains, you know, where I came from, and it explains uh, my Trinity pipeline as an airborne ranger in the early 1980s. And it explains my training as a special forces medic. And, uh, you know, I had people tell me, you know, people, readers wrote in, sent me emails 
saying they really wanted to read that stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of reluctant about it because I'm kind of a private person, you know, and I don't like, uh, you know, putting that sort of information out there because I consider it very personal, you know, very private. But, you know, they wanted to read it, and I thought, well, okay, if someone wants to read it, I'll put it out there. So, you know, it's out there now. Uh, it's done. I've got three books published, and uh, what I'm doing right now is I'm getting ready to, to transition into the book that the Ranger community really wants, which is called Tales of the Rangers. That's an anthology that captures all the oral histories uh, that Airborne Rangers have been telling for decades around fires in the uh, South Korean trading area. And uh, it captures all those stories. And in their own words, you know, I edit it, uh, make it, you know, clean it up, uh, you know, put it, put, put stories in the right order, that sort of thing. Yeah. Working work on it with the historian Joe Mucha, because Joe Mucha is the master of uh, this material. He's, you know, he wrote the definitive uh, history of Operation Urgent Fury, remains unpublished. But uh, at some point in the future, it will be published. There's no question. And uh, in the meantime, when Joe Mucci offers to help, I'm, you know, very grateful to him. Roger that. So, you know, he and I will be co-editing that work, and uh, it's probably going to end up being published in two, maybe three volumes, because uh, it's big. Right now, it's up to 777 pages. It's, what it's, period does it cover? It, it's uh, the... Uh, the early modern, the early modern Ranger Battalion, Second Ranger Battalion. So it it predates the uh, the Ranger Regiment, which was stood up in 1986. Um, and it, you know, I'm not quite old enough. I wasn't one of the original fathers of the Rangers. You know, that that went that, that was in uh, you know First Battalion in 1974. I wasn't, you know, one of the first. Rangers to stand up the second battalion in 1976. I showed up in 19, uh, 1980, so that's when it begins because that's, you know, that's when I was there. But I do include stories that predate that, you know, that go all the way back. Uh, I talk about the fathers of the Ranger Battalion, second Ranger Battalion, like George Conrad, uh, you know, and all those personalities, all those old Rangers that are now part of history. You know, and that influenced the the modern day capabilities of today's military. They uh, <clears throat> because from know, from Abrams Charter, the, you look at those men and yeah, the standard, right. the example that they set, and the Rangers that they trained, who in turn went on to lead outside right. of the Ranger Regiment. That's right. That's right. Yeah, this is you know. So I, I'm just being very precise about uh, the historical niche that this book will fill. And, uh, you know, historians of the Ranger Regiment, people who are interested in Rangers, they're going to love that book. You know, that's the book, like I say. That's the book that the Ranger community really wants, you know. So I finally got my stuff out of the way, and I'm going to give them the book that they want, you know. And like I said, right now, I, I broke it, I've got it broken down into two volumes. If... Uh, once I start uh, putting it up in the secret Facebook rooms, everybody that's mentioned in these books or, or cited or included in the book, I give them a, an invite to a secret room and they can preview 
you know, the, the narrative. And what this does is that it, it, it not only gives people an opportunity to see what is written about them, but it also gives everybody an opportunity to fix errors, right? Because what we are producing here are historical artifacts, right? This is history. So, you know, I'm very much invested in fixing errors and addressing errors. But when that happens, a deluge of additional information invariably comes in. And this is both good and bad, you know. So my job as an editor is to sift through that and extract what's valuable, what's useful, what needs to be preserved, and make hard decisions, you know, on, on things that should be used elsewhere or, just, or maybe just don't fit. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, me and Joe Mucci will be getting into that this year after I get back from uh, the States on this, uh, this ship to the VA to get medical treatment. I'll be diving into that. And uh, look, I'll be looking forward, looking to uh, publish the first volume on the anniversary of Operation Ocean Fury on October 25. So that's coming up. That's what I'm doing right now. Have you been back to Grenada? I won't go. Um, Scott Brazil went, and he said he was just miserable. And I can imagine because, uh, for me, you know, this was it. I, I I can't imagine going there on holiday. Uh, the events that I experienced there were of such emotional and psychological gravity that, uh, yeah, I can't do that. And he said he hated it, and I and I. Imagine, you know, imagine that he did. And, and, you know, we talked about it quite a bit. Scott actually made a visit out here to Bangkok to visit with me. And uh, he and I sat down and we caught up. You know, I hadn't seen him in decades. And, uh, yeah, going back to Grenada was not something that he enjoyed. So, yeah, I, I haven't been back and I don't want to go back. You know, I mean, it's in the past. And writing the book was as far as I'm able to go you know, to address that stuff, and uh, I'm going to try to move on and uh, tie it off and say, okay, I'm finished with that, and to the extent that something like that can be tied off, I've done it, you know, and now I'm going to try to move on. I figure I've got a very few years left before I die, and, you know, I want to use them very well. I want to be smart about how I use that time. Well, uh, talk to me a little bit about Revelation. Tell me about oh. that book. We spent a lot of time talking about the Ranger side of your writing. Well, uh, talk to me about the metaphysical side. Oh, man. People are going to start tuning out. <laughs> <laughs> Revelation, um, I'm just going to say it up front, you know, and, and let the uh, let the chips fall, fall where they fall. It's it's a book on metaphysics, and it has sections on cosmogony, on quantum physics, on Hinduism and Buddhism, specifically Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana. Uh, it includes sections on Tantra and the Apocrypha and Kabbalah and the Western mystery tradition. It's, uh, it's a, uh, it is a work of revelation, okay? Um, as I was writing that preface, that became metamorphosis. As I was writing the preface to it, there was other sort of memories. It just kept getting bigger and bigger. And something was pointing me at articles and books and ideas. And I was folding them in, integrating them, 
And then it dawned on me at some point, something is feeding me, okay? Because I'm not that smart, Carl. Something was feeding me information. And something wanted me to address these topics, okay? And basically what I do, just to distill it down, what I do basically is I build everything. I explain why I wrote A Tale of the Virginia Raiders the way I did. Uh-huh. And then I outline a practice that's called Hesitia. It's, it's, a, it's a Christian doctrine. And basically what that is is the Jesus prayer. You know, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a, a miserable sinner. And what happens when you pray this prayer in a particular fashion, this, is, this goes back to 500 B.C., um, something happens. Okay, it, something divine happens. And basically what I've learned is that if you pray the Jesus prayer with utter surrender and just tell your God your will be done, then magical things happen. Okay, so that's part of it. The other part of it is I, I explain how to meditate, how to do a kind of meditation that's based on quantum physics and on Hinduism. I mean, the Hindu do have the most uh, detailed doctrines uh, of meditation, but uh, the thing so they've been at it for a long time. Well, yeah. Again, we're talking 4,000 BC. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, the thing about meditation is anybody can do it. The real trick to meditation is to do it and to just keep doing it. And what basically happens is if you persist after about a week, then you start to see results. And you don't have to do it for a long time. Uh, You can actually do it for a minute or three minutes or just random moments in the course of your day. And I explain how to do this. And if you do this, what basically happens is you experience... um, you experience a sense of, geez, of uh, mental balance, okay? You have, like, you get this very strange, bizarre mental feeling, okay? That's based on breathing, um, and it's based on isolating your awareness internally, okay? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anybody can can meditate, and there's a million people that tell you, meditate like this, meditate like that, and dismiss all that stuff. I say, look, just do it like this, and watch and see what happens. And if you do that, you will notice effects. You will notice something happening, okay? And it's beneficial. It's really beneficial. So I explain how to do that. Um, and it's, it's something I think that everybody can benefit from. You don't have to be doctrinaire about it. You don't have to sit in a particular position. You don't have to do it at a certain time. You can do it anytime. Basically what I do is I, I put a yantra on my computer screen and then in the course of my day I'll just take a break and I'll meditate on that and visualize the yantra and I'll tune out and I'll be gone for a few minutes, you know. And then I'll check back in, and, and then I feel great. I feel so much better. You know, and I continue. This is one of the reasons I'm able to maintain this really crushing publishing schedule, this writing schedule, because I'm really taking little meditation breaks. 
and I explained all this. I explained how to do it and why it works. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not telling everybody that you, they got to paint Bindu on their foreheads and start, you know, worshiping Kali Ma or Shiva. Okay, that's not what I'm about. All I'm about is getting everybody in touch with their God, whoever their God may be. Okay, and that was the reason I believe that God dictated the text of Revelation to me. That's why I wrote it. Okay, I didn't write it. It wasn't my idea. I just I was just writing a preface, right? But something stepped in and said, "Yeah, you're pretty stupid, Doctor. You just do this." So I've learned over the years. And then it just flowed through you. Yeah, that's right. I just you know I learned over the years. When I'm receiving a transmission like that, I just go on receive mode, and I stop, and I just obey. And it turned into a book, and it's a good book. I like that book a lot. And it's uh, it's funny because, like I say, I give it away free on academia, and I'm just staggered by the people worldwide that are reading that book. I've got readers, people who have read it in Nepal and Tibet, in India, uh, from everywhere in the world, all through Europe, all across America, uh, they're reading that book. And, you know, that's just really humbling, man. That's just staggering to me that, you know, I'm just an old airborne ranger, man. Who am I to, you know, presume to address a global audience, right? But that's what's happened. Well, I think truth is truth, and when you can share something that you've experienced as truth, that uh, that can help other people. We talked in the the, uh, the last set of interviews that the, where the sound quality wasn't good about the guy that I met that founded the One Tree organization that, that asked me, when was the last time I worshipped? Yeah. And, uh, and as I'm struggling trying to remember when the last time I went to church was, he uh, he said, yeah, it's not, I didn't ask you when the last time you went to church, I asked the last time you worshipped. And That's right. Yeah, That's worshiping right. is breathing, it's seeing the trees, it's marveling at the fact that the leaves can turn sunlight into energy that grows an oak out of an acorn. You know, it's, this, this is very much Hindu, okay? Yeah. It's very much Hindu. And basically it's the doctrine of Brahman, okay? Uh, Brahman and Atman, they're in everything, okay? Uh, and these are not ideas that conflict with Judeo-Christian doctrines uh, by no means, okay? These are ideas that can enrich your judeo -Christian. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, basically it's another way to understand a very personal human interface with God, with deity, okay? Um, so, yeah, I... This is stuff that's way over my head, and I'm just a messenger, man. That's all, you know. So, as as a man, I'm flawed. All men are flawed. Uh, I serve as a conduit for a message that comes from on high. Okay, so I did my best to be a good messenger and to be accurate and to you know say what I was being told to say. And I hope it came out good, but like I said, people worldwide are reading that book, and it's freaking me out because, <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, this is the miracle of the Internet, all right? Uh, 
crazy dude Doc T in Bangkok and throw a manuscript up on academia and suddenly it has a global audience. What the hell is that? You know, that's crazy, man. Well, but, that's just like you said you weren't in control of writing it. You're not in control of the distribution. No, I'm not. I'm really not. You know, I mean, I've done the best I can. I put it on ResearchGate. It's available on Google Books. Anybody can do a search of my name, Stephen Trujillo, and then search Revelation, and Google will bring it right up. You know, I, I encourage them also, <clears throat> if you go to, uh, to the Amazon store yeah. and type Stephen Trujillo, uh, P-H-E-N, Stephen, in the search block, you'll find your author page. And in your author page, you have some updates, you have some blog posts, you have all of the books that are available or listed there. And uh, you know, I encourage people to check that out. That's like the easy way, man. Just, you know, just go, I like to, easy. Or, yeah, go to your computer and just do a search and just say search on Stephen Trujillo uh, and then Amazon, right? And guess what? Boom. That page will come up and it's got all the editions, the Amazon editions, e-books and physical books available. And, you know, you click, one click, it could be on your doorstep tomorrow, or if you buy an electronic edition, it can be on your electronic device in moments, you know? So, yeah, this is the miracle. You know, Amazon, everybody has a love-hate relationship with Amazon because they are, I mean, they, they are greedy, man. They are making money. They make a lot more money than I do selling my material, right? But nonetheless, they made it possible for me to circumvent the gatekeepers. That's right. Publishing. I don't have to go through a traditional publishing house. And the implications of this are pretty amazing because, I mean, there's, it's, there's pros and cons. I don't have an editor, right? And so there's people out there, some editors will say, well, everybody needs an editor. And I guess you, you could say that's true. But, you know, when I... I had an editor actually read A Tale of the Grenada Raiders, and he said, oh, yeah, this is pretty good, but we could fix it. And basically what he was telling me was all the changes that we could make to make that book like every other military memoir in existence. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, man, that's not what I'm about. This is not like everybody else's book. I wrote that book de deliberately transgressing those rules Right, so you you talk to anybody who reads, and they're reading Militaria, right? They're going to have a bookshelf full of books written by guys who did this and went there and did that. This book is one of those books, but it's very different, right? And I did not want to deal with an editor trying to massage my work into that kind of format. So, yeah, Amazon, they are killing the publishing industry. They're killing it, okay? And basically, they, they own publishing at this point. They, you know, Barnes & Nobles is kind of hanging in there, you know, but they are definitely under assault. And traditional publishing, I think that they've lost, you know. So what this means is that anybody can write a book, right, anybody. All you've got to do is figure it out on the Amazon interface, the Kindle publishing uh, website, and you can upload your manuscript, right? You can format it. You can get it, you know, it's, it can be a real book. It can have an ISN. So um, what this means is that people who write books can, sub, you know, sell one copy, ten copies, or a thousand copies. Uh, and it totally depends on the quality of the book, right? So 
my books, I've got no advertising budget. I've got no marketing. You know, I'm just me. I put it on my web on my website. I put it on you know on my Facebook page. I put it on LinkedIn, and that's about it, man. Because I don't really know what else to do, you know. And uh, but I'm getting distribution. People are buying it. It's a very weird thing, you know. A tale of the Grenada Raiders sold like gangbusters when I first published it, and then it tapered off after about 90 days. This time, I didn't really have a big splashy opening, but I'm selling two or three copies, four copies, every day. And that's been going on since I published uh, on my birthday, the 11th of November. So, you know, it's January 15th. I'm still, every day, two, three, four copies. Uh, and it's just been going on like that. So, I'll take what I can get, you know, and for me, you never know what's going to happen when you write a book. You do it, do it the best you can, and you put it out there, and you hope for the best, you know. And like you said, it's really out of our hands. Well, I want to uh, I want to shift gears, if uh, if you will. Here we got uh, about another fifteen or twenty minutes, and uh, let's talk a little about the VA. Yeah. Your your experience, especially as an expat having to deal with maintaining your benefits while you maintain a life overseas. Very because difficult. if you don't do some things there, you lose your benefits. That's right. Well, you know, I think that there's a flag on my record at the VA. And, you know, I could tell something's on there because when I check in, they kind of look at the record, then they look at me, and then they look back. So I know something's on there. I'll figure it out because I'll go find Norm Hooten when I go to Orlando and I'll have I'll have him bring it up and show me if you can, you know, without getting in trouble. But there's something on there, right? And basically what it is is I learned how to be a real pest. Uh, I learned how to uh, really pitch a ruckus, throw a ruckus, throw a fit, you know, and because I understand how the VA operates, how they work, I'd be able to use their own rules against them, and I get what I want. But there's certain things that they can't do. Like, for example, they've got to physically see you at least once a year, okay? They have to physically put eyes on you and look at you. And that's an inconvenience for me, living overseas. That means I've got to book a ticket. It's not cheap. It's very expensive. It costs me $2,000 round trip to fly in the steerage section, right? But uh, and then I gotta have a place to stay while I'm there. And I gotta arrange for transportation. You know, they, there's a really nice hotel right across the street from the Lake Nona VA facility. I stayed there the last time I was there a year ago. I went to uh, renew my reservations. They wanted to charge me two thousand dollars for one week, and I said, "You gotta be, you gotta be kidding me!" You know, so I just went to Booking.com and found the next cheapest place and. And uh, I think I'm going to be paying less than seven hundred dollars. Have, have you tried Airbnb? Actually, no, I haven't. And, you uh, should. You should look at that because you might get a whole house for less than you're paying for one night in a big hotel. That's pretty weird. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. 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 The I'm last gonna... time I went to uh, to a Sofic out there in Tampa, uh, <clears throat> the hotels were running five, six hundred bucks a night. Can you and we got that? a we got a four bedroom house. I think it was like three hundred bucks for for four or five days, and we had a half a dozen of us that stayed there. So we saved a ton of money. Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense. You know, I'll look into that. Thank you for the tip. So, 
but yeah, the VA, so they've got to put eyes on you, right? And that means, you know, I, I got to book a ticket. I got to go back. Um, because I give my medications through the VA. What I basically do is I prevail on them to give me a six-month supply in advance. So I could come back to Bangkok and I've got six months of meds on hand, right? And I get a lot of medications. I've got cardiac conditions, diabetes, you know, the works. So, um, you know, I, I can't afford to pay for that medication out of pocket, even though I could do it and then seek reimbursement through the foreign medical program. The foreign medical program at the VA is stuck back in the 1970s, okay? They're difficult to use, takes time, they're very meticulous, you've got to, you know, use hard copies of everything, it's a pain in the ass. So, maybe one of these days I'll seek reimbursement for, you know, my cardiologist or my pain doctor, but... <sighs> You know, I just, I've got limits, Carl. You know, everybody's got limits, and that's where mine is. You know, the, the VA here, they just told me that they have, uh, they're rolling out new policy when it comes to pain management. And if you're on any kind of an opioid, and, and right. uh, I'm on tramadol, which is the lowest one, because I, won't, I don't want to do that codeine stuff. Right. Uh, I have to go in every three months now and get seen. You know, yeah. And this is a, a real change because, you know, a couple of years ago, they were throwing opiates in there. Right. You know, and then they realized that's not a good policy because it makes addicts, right? And, uh, you know, it's very easy to get addicted to opiates. And the problem that we have is that opiates are the only thing that really actually work. They're the only thing that actually really relieve deep pain, okay? So I adjust my opiate issues by... Uh, patronizing a, a very good hospital here in Bangkok, Bangkok Hospital is what it's called, basically, actually. And they have a pain clinic, and I go see a psychiatrist every month, and she looks at me and confirms that I'm not abusing my medications. You know, I've offered many times to pee in a cup for her, give her blood work, she never asks for it. Because, you know, it's clear I'm, I am dependent upon opiates for pain relief. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't play any games. I consider myself addicted, okay? So I'm very strict and very meticulous about how I take those opiates. I, you know, she has me on methadone to, uh, to handle the, the, the addiction itself. And then I take codeine, 15 milligrams, uh, PRN, which is, you know, as needed mm -hmm. for breaking because there's times I simply can't sleep now. Yeah. I'll be in bed and it'll keep waking me up because I'm in pain. So I'll take a codeine and it'll knock me down and I'll get a good 12 hours of sleep. So I get my, my opiates through her and I can get that refunded to the VA if I want to step through their paperwork drill. But you're right, in America, it's they're raising obstacles. When I was there oh, last year, they did not want to give me opiates and they resisted me. And I was like, you know what, you're the guys that threw them at me and got me addicted in the first place. No, there's, there's no protocol, no medical protocol in existence that says it's a good idea to stop a guy who's addicted to opiates on a diet. You can't do that. It's contradicted. It's medically contradicted. So I was able to defeat them, but they made me really work for it. You know, and I'm resentful. You know, I, I would appreciate that. Uh, I don't like it, you know, when the VA pushes me around. You know, and they're just, these are not individual decisions. They're following policies. Okay? Yeah, and, and it seems the whole institution has no common sense. 
Oh, well, they're they're Leviathan, okay. And when they're dealing with you as an individual, it can you can feel very much outnumbered, all right. And you can feel very much, you know, like they're gigantic and that you can't move them, but you can. And I just wrote an article. I put it on my website at vegetatingdispatch.com. I wrote an article about the uh, White House VA hotline. Okay. Now, every time that the VA screws me over, and they try to do it all the time, I just say, okay, what was your name? And I give the name, you know, and I get the date and time, and then I call that number, you know, at the, at the <laughs> VA hotline, and I just say, hey, these guys are doing this, and I don't want them to do that. I want them to do this, and these guys are really good, man. They, you know, they'll, they'll say, okay, and they'll open up a case file, and they'll say, okay, we're going to work on that for you. Here's your case number, boom, it hits your email address, your email account instantly. And then they're following up on it. 48 hours later, the VA is calling me, asking me, oh, we're so sorry. What can we do to make you happy? And they do it, okay? So I'm going to, I'm going to read this, this phone number out. It's 1-855-948-2311. It's the VA White House Hotline. You can search for it on Google. Let me repeat it. Make sure I copied it down because I'll put it uh, in the context of the interview to 855-948-2311. That's it. Okay. White House, VA White House Hotline. Okay. And tell them Dr. T sent you. Those guys are red hot, Carl. They're great. You know, a year ago the VA refused. They said, we're not going to give you six months supply. We can't do that, blah, blah, blah. I called them 48 hours later. They called me and said, yeah, your, your medications are on the way, Mr. Tree. I'm like, okay, thank you very much. And then this year, you know, I made my, my, my uh, appointments in uh, September and October for January. I made them way in advance to ensure that I could get all my appointments lined up for one week in January. And then in December last month, they started canceling my appointments. I flipped out, Carl. I got so mad. Because, you know, for me, I've got to book a flight. It's not cheap. I've got to, you know, book hotel reservations. I've got to make coordinations for transportation. And they can't, you know, then when they say, well, you know, the doctor is not available. They had something come up. They had to cancel the appointment. I'm like, okay, well, when can you fit me in? They couldn't fit me in for 90 days. Yeah. Okay. And according to their, their policies, that's legit. Okay. As long as they can fit you in within 90 days, their job is done. They, they, they're happy with themselves. I just told them, that's not going to fly for me. So they said, well, there's nothing we can do. I said, okay, fine. I called the VA White House hotline. Guess what, Carl? 48 hours later, I got all the appointments reinstated, and they sent me a really nice letter. And i got to tell you about this letter. It's signed by Timothy W. Leitzer, the medical center director, the director of the Lake Nona facility, signed this letter to me. And he just said, sorry, and we're going to give you everything you wanted, and here's a listing of all your appointments. If there's any other hassles, call the director of scheduling, and we will fix it. Just like that, Carl, okay? That's what happens when you call the VA White House hotline. You end up getting a, a, a piece of mail, a letter in the mail, saying, sorry, here's everything. Is it fixed to your satisfaction? 
So, you know, I hear from guys all the time, but it has with the VA, and they just give up. Don't give up. No, you all can't the, give up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you got to be persistent. You got to. You also, you also can't get angry. You know. Right. I mean, if, if you're angry, you can't show it. You know, it's better to just disengage and walk away, and, and give yourself a couple of days to calm down, and then re-engage. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because if you if you show anger in front of a VA person, then they'll blacklist your file. Well, they can. Yeah, that's right. They can. Uh, they can just shut down and say, "Well, this guy crossed the line, and I'm not going to. I'm not going to do it." Yeah, they'll, they'll put a flag on you, and it'll be hard to yeah. get an appointment. Yep. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. You know, I'm not surprised. So yeah, I mean, I've got to say honestly, I am staggered by the Lake Nona facility, the people that work there. You know, these these people. I don't know how they can stop with every interaction with a veteran and just start over again and say, okay, how can I help you today? You know, and no matter what happened with the guy ahead of them, with the guy ahead of you, they're able to just encapsulate that and stop it and start over and give you your time, right, and, and, and engage with you. And they do it in a cheerful fashion, a positive fashion. So I'm staggered. I mean, this is obviously it's a it's a protocol it's a process that's trading they're trading them to do this well and uh, i think the caregivers at the va are in a different category of people than the administrators that you have to get through to get to the caregivers there's no question once you're in there you're good to go okay you're good the doctors are good the nurses are good everyone's great but you've got to get in there okay you've got to get past the schedulers so basically what i'm saying is to get past that obstacle, to get past the schedulers, use the VA White House hotline. If you're not getting what you need, if you're not getting the service that you need, the appointments that you need, whatever, you can do it. All right, use that phone number. Just call. But organize yourself. Make you know, write up a script ahead of time. That way, when you call, you can be lucid. You can be rational. You can be sequential. You can explain what your problem is, and you can explain what your desired outcome is. If you give it to them in a package like that, they'll give you what you want. All right. As long as you're asking for something that's that you deserve, that's that's appropriate. Something that's not, you know, out of bounds. If you're just asking for something that's very rational or reasonable, they're going to make it happen. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I've used the VA White House hotline now. And any time that someone at the VA tells me no, I'm just like, okay, what's your name, please? And I make a note of the date and the time, and then I call the White House, and they fix it. This is something that President Trump did for us. Um, now, the, one of the limitations is that it's only for VA stuff, Okay. Um, like I've got a long-standing problem with Social Security Administration. They declined me for uh, Social Security disability all the way back in 2007 uh, because I didn't have enough work credits. And the reason I didn't have enough work credits was because the IRS made a mistake when they did my tax returns for 2003 and 2004, and it took me more than a decade to get that fixed. Hmm. But now I can't get Social Security to revisit the, de the, the declination of, uh, of, of uh, benefits because they said, well, you're outside the time frame, blah, 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 blah. So I'm just stuck. I'm losing $1,000 a month, you know, that justifiably should be coming to me you know, as a 100% disabled veteran. 
So, yeah, I can't take, you know, I talk, try to talk that over with them at the VA hotline. They're like, yeah, we can't do anything about that. That's, you know, so I need somebody within the Social Security Administration who could just look at this, look at the facts. Did you get a chance to talk to my buddy? You know, I reached out to him, and I, and I think he's I think he's jammed up right now. Because I, I thought I saw an email that he had sent back to you. Maybe you didn't get it, but I'll. No, I think we we sort of crossed. We sort of crossed there, but yeah, I, we didn't we didn't move it forward. So I will. You know, I'll ping him. If you if you think he's the right guy, I'll you know absolutely I'll give him a second. He's chance. knowledgeable. He's not in. He doesn't work there anymore, but he's still connected to some of the directors that are. So. Well, you know what? That's what I need. I need one director to say, okay, look, this is uh, this this obviously should not have happened. This was a mistake. Let's fix it. I'm not asking for money in arrears. If they were to pay me in arrears. Carl, I'd be getting $130,000. I'm not asking for the U.S. government to give me $100,000. I just want 1000 bucks a month, like every other guy, you know, who's 100% disabled receives, okay? And that 1000 bucks a month would really make a big difference, you know, in my lifestyle, my in, in the quality of life, you know, that for as many years as, as I've got left, which is, the VA tells me every dime I go, not going to be long. You know, they don't know when I'm going to die, but... They're saying it could happen any day, you know. So basically, I'm at a very high risk for stroke, and I would love to get this fixed before I do check out. Right, right. You know, that way I can leave Mama set up. She could have a little bit of a little bit of money coming into her, you know, after I'm gone. But um, so yeah, VA hotline. That's, I'm a very big, uh, very big advocate of uh, of that service that was set up for us by by President Trump. Yeah, and it, it cracks me up. You, you search on, on those keywords on, on the Internet, and you're going to find all kinds of neoliberals tearing down the service, saying President Trump didn't do it, he, you know, he, or he did it wrong, or it doesn't really work. You know, it's, it's absurd. It's just insane. So I'm telling you here right now, the service works. President Trump set it up. I'm grateful to him for doing it, you know, and... That's not a political statement. It shouldn't be a political statement. But we live in a time where people turn those kinds of statements into right. politics. Well, know? it's unfortunate we have to have the hotline to begin with. But I'm glad that that tool is out there, and, and we need to use it. One of the things that that all veterans need to do is hold the VA accountable. Oh, and gee. and you if know, you are, you know, if you are, I, I've talked to guys that, that uh, qualify for VA care, but they don't use it because they have private insurance. So, right. okay, so you're an educated guy, you work for a great company, you have great insurance, that's awesome. Now get your educated butt into the VA, find out how it works locally, and if it's not up to standard, use your education and and talk to people that can address it and get it fixed. Because to not use it, that's like walking over a piece of trash in your front yard every day, you don't pick it up, right? You, you need to go... Uh, Find out what's going on and address it. And if it's great, let everybody know it's great. Absolutely. But if it's busted, then demand that they do different because that that less educated veteran that may be dealing with some health issues that left the military at a low rank uh, is probably not somebody that's going to rattle the bushes because they're afraid that they'll get another 90-day delay or their prescription won't get filled or they won't get to see the doctor that they're trying to see. So or they'll they take it. They'll just, how, yeah. Right, they'll or just, they just don't know how to do it. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. I um. 
you know, I encounter it all the time. I get guys tell me, yeah, I tried to do it, I just gave up. You know, and it breaks my heart, man, because, you know, I'm just one guy. I can, and I've got my hands full advocating for myself. You know, and there are organizations like Gallant Few, you know, and many others that do advocate for veterans, you know, some of whom who do need assistance or are not capable of advocating for themselves, you know. And I just, these guys that are giving up, I just, I shake my head. I'm like, no, man, you can't. You can't give up. Just look around, you know, call Carl Monger at Gallup Few, and he'll point you in the direction you need to go and get you the help that you need, you know. And, yeah, I mean, we got to do it because we're getting old, Carl. And every year that goes by, every month that goes by, every week that goes by, there's more of us in the dirt. And yeah, it's horrifying because you get yeah. older and you just get the obituaries, man. You know, we're, we're dropping like flies, you know. We're, we're, and this is just the way it is. This is what human existence is. You know, you get old and everybody around you dies and then one day it's your turn. You know? Well, uh, Stephen, we've come full circle. So we're at the end of an hour. We started off talking about dying. Now we're in and talking about dying. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, I I don't want to wait a whole year to do another quality interview with you. I I would like to maybe here in a month let's uh, let's touch base and and after uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to conclude the interview now, but stay on the line. So okay. it's been Stephen Trujillo talking about. A Tale of the Grenada Rangers, Metamorphosis, Forging, uh, an Airborne Ranger, almost said Army Ranger, and uh, Revelation, and uh, Rosetta Stone of Memories. So go check out Stephen Trujillo's work. Look for uh, his website, magickingdomdispatch.com, and uh, and check it out. So, Stephen, thank you so much for being on The New American Veteran. Carl, I'm, I'm very grateful to you. Thank you for giving me the time of day. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you again for tuning in to Gallant Fuse, the new American veteran, and uh, Stephen Trujillo today. Be sure and check out Magic Kingdom Dispatch for his blog. And on Amazon, go look up his books. If you just search Stephen Trujillo, link is uh, in the description here of this podcast, you'll be able to find and purchase his books. Be brave, be bold, be gallant.